This is mutual. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. Sonic Echo. This is Jack Ward, and I'm I'm here with Jeffrey Billard and Lothar Tuppen, and we're going to talk the, the six-shooter here on Sonic Echo, the Western edition. Good day, brothers. Jeff, how are you today? Oh, good day there, Jack. I'm just here pounding my leather and uh, getting ready to uh, hit the saddle. Do I have to put this as a different, uh, is this now PG-13 because you're pounding leather down there or is it just... Well, no, that's what they were talking about. when I, That's what the blacksmith was talking about. He, he was yeah. pounding leather. Yeah. That's true. Although you think he was like, well, who who actually worked the leather more? Wouldn't have been a blacksmith the same way. No, it wouldn't have, but that's the guy who said it. Yeah, um, you're right. Yeah, well, I don't know, Leathersmith. Uh, <laughs> is that what it would have been called? I don't know. I'm but, sure uh, Lothar can help us. Lothar, how's your saddle sores today? Well, I'm trying to find a second um, O in my typeset so that we can print out the bill, the playbills for Sonic Echo, and I've only got one O right now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'll make sense to people in about half an there hour. There you go. <laughs> the Six Shooter is our show today. It brought James Stewart to the NBC microphone on September 20th, 1953, until June 24th, 1954. In a fine series of folksy Western adventures, Stewart was never better on the air than in this the drama of Britt Ponset, Frontier Drifter, created by Frank Burt. Epigraph set up nicely. It says at the beginning, The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dried brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. People call them both the six-shooter. So Ponset was a wandering, easygoing gentleman, and when he had to be, a gunfighter. So, uh, Lothar, we'll start with you. Were you uh, familiar with the six-shooter? I've only listened to maybe one or two episodes before, and honestly, at the time, I think I was like wanting something a little grittier and a little bit darker, and so it was like, oh, it's very sweet. Maybe I'll come back to it. And now after doing the research, and we'll talk more about this, I think there's a lot more there that I should give it credit for, almost in a slightly surreal and definitely um, all sorts of different emotional ranges. So I think it'll be fun to talk about the series on the other side. Cool. What about you, Jeff? I had not listened to The Six Shooter at all. And to be honest, uh, Jimmy Stewart was never my favorite actor. Really? In terms of Westerns. Mm. But when I so when I listened to this though, I got a completely different opinion because just the way that I heard this, it felt like it was quiet, like it was meditative. It was a different experience for a radio drama for me, and I loved it. And I went on to listen to about three or four more since you brought it, and I just love them. I can't wait to listen to the rest of them. There's a real heart in them. Yeah. And I felt like it, like, and I did some reading on this and talked about being more of a mature Western or an adult Western. 
where they were talking. It was more than just two, a good guy and a bad guy facing off on Main Street. They were talking about real psychological and social issues in it. And I, I think that the more you listen to them, the more they're dealing with one. Like one I listened to was um, a stepson dealing with his stepfather and the mother and mm-hmm. and all that. So I, I thought there was a lot more to it than just let's duel it out on Main Street, uh, which I like too. Um, but I really appreciated that about it. And I appreciated Stewart's acting, just his gentle acting. Uh, you know, even in the most tense moments, he's the narration is just kind of quiet. I, I like that. That's one of the things that, that impressed me, too, when I was listening to it with other ears, because like like you were saying, uh, Jeff, it's he was never my favorite one because he's, you know, I sort of associated him with Hitchcock and mm-hmm. you know, it's a wonderful life. And he's always this sort of like a little bit more mellow sometimes meek character actor and i never saw him as the tough guy gunslinger and i'm getting a better appreciation for the sort of rock that everything else is swirling around in the in the you know the bay of of this western horribly mixed metaphor that i'm trying to create (laughs) (laughs) i you know it's funny you say that about the hitchcock because i read in one of the pieces i read that it was after he did this that he started doing the hitchcock roles and things like that um that really made him into a different kind of an actor. Now, I'm not saying it was because of this radio drama, but I think it opened up some doors for him. I find him, there's a, there's a real quiet strength. And in this particular show, and I, in a minute, what I'm going to do, which we haven't done before, is I've got, mm-hmm. and I've sent it to you guys, a little clip of him talking about the show himself. And I think we'll go to that, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit before we actually go to the sixth shooter. Oh, yeah. The thing is, is that he was actually a military hero. Mm-hmm. He's a general. Yeah. For somebody that has played a lot of sort of quiet characters and not necessarily super strong, it's fascinating that there is this real strength behind what he says in the six shooter. Like he gives he gives so much space for the other actors mm-hmm. to move the story. And he sort of listens and reflects and draws something back. That's kind of missing in today's hero. Today's hero's gotta be, you know, big and brash and and you know take over the whole thing. It's, you know, we, we live in the selfie generation, right? Sure. And so um, James Stewart is not that kind of person. I mean, even in his most brash roles, he's not that kind of person. He kind of explodes when he needs to explode and he's quiet when he needs to be for the rest of the time kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. Well, then let's take a moment and let's listen to uh, James Stewart talk about the six shooter itself and why he brought it here. Well, that ends the first act of the six shooter, folks. Hope you're enjoying the show. Before we get on with it, I'd like to tell you a little bit about how I happen to be doing this program. I've been lucky enough to do quite a bit of radio acting before, but I've never had a program of my own. The right thing just didn't seem to come along, at least not until the six-shooter. You see, I've made several stories of this kind for pictures, that is, honest, legitimate stories of the West, and I hope that this series can offer the same type of enjoyment with the same integrity. We think the sort of program the whole family will enjoy, and we think that the character of Britt Ponset typifies some of the greatness that built America. We'd be pleased if you agreed with us. Okay, we're back from that. So I find it fascinating that this particular audio drama or radio drama at the time was very much something Stuart looked for. He wanted a particular role that he could, you know, sink his teeth into and run definitively himself. He didn't do everything, but just he he would bring his star power to it. How do you feel about that? I think it's admirable. He was a big 
a film, you know, star. And he had done radio, but he had never been, correct me if I'm wrong, Jack, he had never done a leading role in a series. No, correct? that's, yeah, that's, that's what he basically said in the intro. He says, you know, he's, he's done a lot of little things and he's done, he's come in here and there to do different stuff, but he was waiting for something special. And with this, he found it. And the thing that I looked at when uh, this actually aired in the audition, in the middle of the audition show. Right. And he was trying to get a sponsor. Yeah. There's at the end of it, there's a little kind of a phony uh, sponsorship piece where he says, I'll use, you know, I'll use whatever product, but he doesn't, does he? So I'll let, I'll let you talk about that, Jack. That's true. I, well, I mean, I, I, I don't mind passing it off to, to, for Lothar or anyone else to talk about it. He wanted something very specific. Mm-hmm. He didn't want certain specific stuff because he wanted it to be a family show. Right. So it was a, a cigarette company that was ready to ready to put their money behind him, which would have kept them going for years. Mm-hmm. And he decided against that. So he'd rather shut it down than uh, continue. Well, what I found out is it was actually Chesterfield Cigarettes, and, and they yep. tried very hard to be the sponsor. And he said no, because he didn't, like you said, he didn't want that to be uh, sponsoring his show. And actually, for I think four of the episodes... It's sponsored by Coleman Eaters. That's right. Yeah. So I just, I find that interesting. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting also that, and I don't know, maybe you guys have more detail than this, but a lot of the stuff I was uh, seeing from various sites was that he didn't think that the cigarettes would be a good sponsor based upon his sort of screen persona. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm wondering how much of that was actually, no, these things are going to kill people and I don't want to do it as opposed to there's something else going on. Like, like how much of him was he being a, a little ahead of the time in understanding, you know, how dangerous cigarettes were and how much of it was just a, an appearance of like, it, it just doesn't fit in with the way I want to sell myself. Yeah. Which is weird too, because, you know, after 1950, when, you know, this starts to take place, this is a, a later sort of old time radio show. He often played sort of the tough, cynical, and sometimes even ruthless characters in some of the Alfred Hitchcock movies and stuff like that. So you're wondering what he's basing his his persona on. Is it like the previous decade where he was? He- or if it's just a polite way to where that was the statement that he made, but actually it was something different of like, I can't stand those damn things and they annoy the hell out of me <laughs> and I don't like people who smoke around me and all yeah. that. But it was just maybe maybe a, a polite way of saying, oh, I just don't think it's going to you know work well for me from a business point of view of how I want to market it. And maybe that just shut people up. I, I right. don't know. Right. Yeah. You know, he lived a long time. I just want to point that out. He, he died in 97. Oh, yeah. In L.A. He was born in 08. Wow. The last thing I think he ended up doing was actually um, a commercial, if I remember correctly, a Campbell's soup commercial where you don't even see his face. Really? The camera is in place and you see his hands and he's talking to people on the table. So they don't show him specifically, but you, you when I, when I watched it, I didn't. I said somebody's trying to sound like Jimmy Stewart, but <laughs> but it was actually Jimmy Stewart when he did it, kind of thing. He had a very long life and a very long storied career. This is just one amazing chapter in the the radio drama world. So, is there anything else you want to say before we get a chance to listen to Duel at Lockwood? Nope. Well, I would say too. In the introduction, pay attention to the music, mm-hmm. and uh, we can talk about that maybe at the end. All righty then. Then let's have a listen to James Stewart as the six shooter with Duel at Lockwood. <laughs> Thank you. 
In a moment, you'll hear James Stewart as the Six Shooter. Just one of the many fine programs brought to you Sundays on NBC. Later this evening, listen to the NBC Star Playhouse with one of your favorite stars. Here, meet the press, America's number one newsmaking program. And be sure to keep tuned for the dramatic story of communism in America on Last Man Out. A wonderful lineup of great programs, all of them heard only on NBC. James Stewart as the Six Shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle unmarked. People call them both the Six Shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as the Six Shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponson, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. Now, in just a moment, you'll hear Act One of The Six Shooter. But first, I want to be sure that all of you know that beginning next week, we change our day and time of broadcast. Instead of Sundays, we'll be on the air Thursday evenings. In other words, our next six-shooter program will be broadcast Thursday, April 1st, and every Thursday thereafter. For time of broadcast, please consult the listing in your local newspaper. We hope you like our new Thursday evening time. Now, Act One of The Six-Shooter... Starring James Stewart. Oh, I hope. Wes? Wes! What are you hollering about, Jim Cassidy? I'm looking for Wes, Miss Singer. You know where I can find him? Lockwood, maybe. No, ma'am. He ain't in town this morning. I just come from there. The jail in Lockwood. That's where he might be. Now, Miss Singer, Wes ain't in jail no more. That's all over now. All over? Sure. And nobody's apt to try arresting him again, either. They'll arrest him again, Jim, someday. Don't make no mistake about that. They'll arrest him or they'll kill him. We all got to go sooner or later, Granny. Oh, Wes, but I... if I was as close to my time as you are to yours, I wouldn't be talking about killing and dying so much. Your time's closer than you think, Wes. Maybe even closer than mine. Doggone it, Wes. She told me you wasn't even to home. Ah, Granny's getting cantankerous in her old age, that's all. Uh, what do you want? Uh, nothing special. Nothing special. I, uh... Just thought maybe you'd like to know Britt Ponsett's in Lockwood. Ponsett? Yeah. He's staying at the hotel. Well, why didn't you say so before? Well, what's the difference? You wasn't serious the other day. I wish you couldn't have been. He's the six shooter. You'll find out whether I was serious or not. I'll be in Lockwood at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Maybe, maybe Ponsett will be gone. He won't leave. Not if he hears I'm coming in to pay him a visit. You mean 
you want folks to know what you're aiming to do? Sure, why not? Well, Sheriff Hittleman ain't gonna like the idea. He made that plain enough last week. You think I'd let Ben Hittleman get in my way? <laughs> well, I'll grant you it wouldn't mean much, killing an old geezer who should have been put out to pasture ten years ago. Wes, you But can't... if he asks for it, I reckon I'll have to oblige him. Now, go on, spread the word. We ought to draw a good-sized crowd, this six-shooter and me. Well, as soon as we'd finished fencing in the last couple of thousand acres on the tip-top ranch, old man Jeffer sent me into Lockwood to get some signs printed up. He wanted everybody to know that he owned the biggest spread in this part of the state, and he figured posting these signs every quarter of a mile or so would do the trick. Of course, the wording had to be just right. He wrote it all down so I wouldn't forget it. Tip Top Ranch, property of Rex Jeffers. Keep out. This means you. Trespassers will be shot at sight. If you ain't able to read this notice, keep out anyway. Rex Jeffers means what he says. Signed, Rex Jeffers. Uh, it's Thursday night when I got into town and the office of the Lockwood Claren was closed. But first thing Friday morning, I headed over to give Pete Drum the order. Pete Pete was the owner of the Claren. Eh, what in thunder is Rex thinking of, Britt? Folks all know where the tip-top starts in and where it leaves off. Besides, I thought he had a fence around it now. He has, he has, but I guess maybe Rex feels that ain't enough. Oh, 2,000 posters, just so he can see his name in print. All right, all right, I'll do them. But it'll cost him $15, that's my price. $15? Can't be done for a cent less. Paper's mm. expensive, Britt. Well, uh, how soon do you figure you can get at it, Pete? Oh, oh, I don't know. I've got me a few more of these auction handbills that are in all. Then I suppose I can shift over to your order. Yeah, well, it's a good thing you're coming to town today. Oh? Monday, I start getting ready for next week's paper. That ties me up clear into Thursday morning. And the way things have been happening around here lately... Well, well what do you mean, Pay? Uh-uh. Now, don't tell me that you ain't heard. No, no, can't say I have. Well, sir, Lockwood's got a brand new gunfighter. Oh, gunfighter? Just a kid, but he's faster than grease lightning. The first thing you know, Wes Singer will be just about as well-known as Sam Bass or Bill Longley or any of the rest of them dead-eyes. Wes Singer? Uh-huh. Two killings in less than a month. That's what has got to his credit so far. Mm-hmm. Wyatt Barker. He was the first. Wyatt and Wes got into some kind of a mix-up over to Charlie Jensen's place. Well, sir, Wes beat him to the draw and pumped four shots into Wyatt's body before it even hit the floor. You don't say. And afterwards, he just stood around there and he waited for Sheriff Hittleman to take him in for questioning. Why, he acted like he he didn't have a worry in the world. (laughs) And as things worked out, he was right. There was nothing the sheriff could charge him with, seeing as how Wyatt was already drawing his gun when Wes cut loose. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, just that's enough of them handbills now. Yeah, yeah. Now, what happened to that paper you gave me, Brett? Oh, that? Well, you know the wording on it for your poster? Oh, 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 here it is. Right here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Now, let's see. Uh, I suppose Rex Jeffers wants his name in the biggest type I've got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I reckon he'd he like to have it stand out good and plain. Oh, yes, he would. Well, well, I guess this will have to do. It was big enough for Lincoln's assassination. It ought to be big enough for Rex. Anyhow, like I was saying, 
folks just didn't know what to make of West Singer and the way he'd killed Wyatt Barker. They wasn't sure whether it was one of those times when a young fella just sort of flies off the handle and then settles down again afterwards. Or if Wes would take up gunslinging for a whole career. <laughs> About ten days later, they found out. Oh? Uh-huh. Yeah. It was on a Wednesday when he come riding down Main Street again. And we was all kind of curious to see how he'd behave, so... Uh, some of us sort of moseyed over to Charlie Johnson's place when he went inside. And we'd no more than got there before he was in a mix-up with Todd Apple. That's all. Uh... Britt, I tell you, if I hadn't seen it myself, I wouldn't have believed it. Wes outdrew Todd by almost a full second. Now, you've got to give the devil his due. Wes Singer is a fast man with a six-shooter. And I ought to know, I've seen the best. I've seen that gun of yours in action, Brad. Well, that was some time ago. Oh, you're still walking around on your hind legs? <laughs> That's a pretty good sign you ain't completely out of practice. Well, what about the sheriff? Didn't he arrest young Singer after the second shooting? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. He arrested him. Take a look at last week's clarion. Let's see. Oh, it's right there on the counter behind you there. Hmm? Oh. Oh, is it Wes Singer acquitted? Jury finds Todd Apple killing was self-defense. Huh. Well, I guess they had to rule it that way since both men was armed, but... Sheriff Hiddleman, he sure didn't like it. He told Wes the next time he come into town stirring up trouble, he wouldn't be alive for no trial afterwards. Well, Ben Hiddleman's a man of his word, Singer ought to know that. Sheriff ain't as young as he used to be, Brit. And he's slowed down some these last few years. He slowed down a lot. Well, you take last winter when he went after Jake Gordon. If Jake's gun hadn't jammed, Ben wouldn't be here now. And believe me, Jake couldn't hold a candle to young Singer. Oh, no. Not a candle. Now, what happened to that other cave? I was sure I had two of them. Yeah, speaking of the sheriff, yeah, I think maybe I'll wander over and see how he's getting along. His office still around the corner? Yeah, here? same place as always. I'll drop back and see you later. Please. Okay, Britt. But you take it easy. Well, Lockwood never had been what you might call a real peaceful town. They'd had their share of gunfighters and shootings. No doubt about that. But Ben Hellman, he'd managed to keep things pretty well under control, so I figured he'd find some way of handling this West Singer. As I turned the corner, I got a little glimpse of Ben through the side window of his office. He was putting on his hat and getting ready to go out somewhere. Uh, George Pete was right. Ben had aged, even more than I expected. He was carrying some extra weight around his middle, too. Maybe that's what made him look shorter than I remembered him. His mustache had turned to kind of a brownish gray. Well, I opened the door and stepped inside. And for a minute or so, Ben didn't say anything. He just sort of stared at me, frowning. And then he sighed and took off his Stetson. Hello, Britt. Hi, Ben. I heard you was in town. I was just going to start looking for you. Oh, well, I guess I saved you the trouble, huh? Yeah. How long you figured on staying in Lockwood, Britt? Oh, the rest of the day, maybe part of tomorrow. Depends on how fast Pete Drum finishes up some printing he's doing for me. What's the matter? You actually get rid of me? No, no, no. If you were to run off now, that would turn him into a holy terror for certain. Say you left because you were scared of him. You know, holding him back after that. Well, now, just what the Sam Hill are you talking about, Dan? You ever hear of a fellow called Wes Singer? Lives out east of town? Yeah, yeah. Pete was just telling me about him. Well, it seems he's spoiling for a gunfight with you. With, with, with me? Yes. 
Why, I never laid eyes on the man in my life. Well, he knows you, at least by reputation. Oh. He got to shooting off his mouth the other day, telling some of his pals how he could out-trigger any man in the state. One of the boys who was listening brung up your name, said he'd bet you could teach Wes a few things about slapping leather. I see. Of course, Wes had to back up his bragging. He told him if he was ever to come around Lockwood, he'd show him who was the best shot. He'd show everybody. Oh, well, I imagine I just so much talk. At the time, maybe. But you're in town now. And if West don't do something about it, well, he ain't going to look like much. Besides, you're kind of a tempting target, Britt. Hmm? Well, what are you talking about, Ben? You're the six-shooter, aren't you? Any young gunfighter who put a bullet into you, well, that'd give him a real claim to fame. Oh, well, it's crazy, Ben. He doesn't have any cause to pick a fight with me. They're all crazy, Britt. Gunslingers like Wes. The idea of getting killed themselves, it it don't even enter their heads. If it did, they wouldn't be gunslingers. Well, you better get over to the hotel. Hmm? The word is Singer will get to town around 4 o'clock. I want you out of the way until I've finished with him. Until you finish with him? I warned him the next time he come into Lockwood on the prod, he'd have to answer to me. Oh. You, uh... You gonna shoot it out with him? If I have to. You're... You sure you can handle him, Ben? Of course I can handle um, No, Britt. No, I ain't sure. He's young. He's awful fast. Yeah, yeah, that's what Pete said. But I gotta try. If it turns out that I ain't still man enough, well, I always knew that sooner or later one of them would come along who was younger and faster. Now, listen, Ben, you you know, he's gunning for me, not you. That ain't the point, Britt. I'm the one who laid down the law. Told him what I'd do if he ever tried to pull off another shooting spree. Sure, sure, I know. So it's my job to stop him. Oh, you might be a better match for Wes. I don't deny that. And if he should get past me, not that he will, you understand. But if he should, well then... Yeah? But I just couldn't step back and let you take him on first. Why, folks would never pay no heed to me afterward. They'd... They'd say I'd talk big to Wes, but it was your gun he'd listen to. You see my point, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I see your point, Ben. We'll return to James Stewart as the sick shooter in just a moment. Be sure you're tuned to NBC Radio Thursday evening, March 25th, for the Academy Awards. At that time, you'll hear the entire Academy Awards ceremonies direct from the Hollywood Pantages Theater, where the finest artists in the motion picture industry will be assembled. Donald O'Connor will be your host, and during the evening, some 25 Academy Award Oscars will be handed to their new owners. It's Hollywood's most thrilling night of the year, jam-packed with glamour from beginning to end. And you can hear every moment of it when you tune to NBC. Right now, of course, the names of the Oscar winners are a highly guarded secret. A secret that any number of Hollywood actors, actresses, writers, musicians, and directors would love to know. Remember, it's a date with NBC Radio this coming Thursday evening. 
And that means be tuned to the station to which you're now listening for the Motion Picture Academy Award Ceremonies directly from the stage of the Hollywood Pantages Theater. of The Sick Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponsett. You sure couldn't blame Ben for feeling the way he did. He was the sheriff, and if Wes Singer came into Lockwood bound and determined to have another gunfight, well, Ben would just have to take a stand, that's all. And I sure didn't like the idea. A young fella I'd never even met up with was gunning for me, and somebody else was going to try to hold him off. No, that's just... Um, not that I was anxious to get mixed up with him or anything, but I just... Well... Anyway, as long as Ben had made up his mind, there wasn't much I could do about it one way or the other, at least for the time being. So I, I moseyed over to the hotel. The clerk stopped me as I was passing the desk. He pointed to a woman sitting on the other end of the lobby. He said she'd been waiting for me to come in. Elderly lady, white hair, wrinkled yellow face with a blue straw bonnet tied under her chin. <clears throat> Uh, ma'am, uh... Yes? Uh, my name's Ponsett, ma'am. Britt Ponsett. Oh. Would you... Would you mind sitting down here, Mr. Ponsett? Sure, sure. It's, um... It's about Wes. Oh, yes, yes. Wes Singer, that is. I'm his grandma. I see, uh-huh. You know what he aims to do this afternoon, Mr. Ponsett? Well, I'd heard some talk about it, yes, ma'am. It ain't just talk. He means it. He means to kill you. Now, now, don't get too upset about him, Miss Singer. There's probably won't be any trouble between me and Wes. Uh... What do you mean? Well, uh, Sheriff Heddleman will be waiting for him, and uh, if Wes starts anything, he'll more more likely land in jail. There ain't no jail could hold him anymore. And Ben Hittleman won't be able to arrest him again, neither. He'll shoot Ben without batting an eye. Well, uh, I'm afraid I don't understand you, Miss Singer. I figured you were worried about Wes. I, I thought that's why you wanted to talk to me. Worried about him? Well, I'm worried about all the men he's going to murder if somebody don't stop him. Men like Wyatt Barker and Todd Apple. Ben Hittleman, he'll be next. Uh-huh. Well, uh, just what is it you want from me, Mrs. Singer? I want you to kill Wes. I want you to shoot him down like you'd shoot down a mad dog. You're the sick shooter. You're the only one who'd have a chance against him. Well, now, Sheriff Hittleman's the law in this town, Mrs. Singer. It ain't up to me. Law? Me. What kind of law is it to turn Wes loose after his other killings? He ain't fit to live, Mr. Ponsett. Maybe it's my fault he turned out the way he did. Maybe if his ma and pa had been here to raise him. But they wasn't. I'd done my best. Of course you did, Miss Singer. Of course. He couldn't have been born mean. The meanness wasn't in his blood. I don't know how it got into him. Uh-huh. 
Well, sometimes it's pretty hard to explain a thing like that. There's only know. one way he can end up. He'll be killed sooner or later. I'd even thought about doing it myself. Maybe it's my duty. No, no, you shouldn't be talking like this, man. You've got to kill him, Mr. Ponzi. Today, this afternoon, before anybody else's blood is on his hands. Well, now, I understand how you feel, Miss Singer, but my trying to kill Wes wouldn't... It just... I I just don't see how that'd be the answer. Then what is the answer? I racked my brain, asked God's help, done everything I could think of. What is the answer? Well, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm afraid I just don't know. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon when Mrs. Singer left the hotel. I watched her get into her buggy and drive off. She sat there stiff and tall, her eyes straight ahead, not looking one way or the other. And I waited until she dwindled down to just a little speck, and then I walked outside. There was a kind of a stillness in the air like on a hot summer day just before a thunderstorm. town was practically deserted. Nobody was in the stores, nobody on the street. Nobody but Ben Hittleman. Britt, I told you to keep out of sight. Yeah, yeah, I know, Ben. Now, you get back to the hotel before it's too late. I'm, uh, I'm not waiting in the hotel, Ben. What? Now, I made up my mind. I've decided to take a little ride this afternoon. A ride? What are you talking about? Well, I thought maybe I'd head over that way, Toward those hills over there. And run right into West Singer? Well, I suppose we might meet up if he's coming in that direction. You know darn well he's coming from that direction. I told you he lives east of town. Uh, not of the thinker, I guess you did, yeah. Uh, well, I'll be saying you. Now you listen to me, Britt. Now I I have listened to you, and I see your point, Ben. If there's a gunfight here in Lockwood, or if it looks like there's going to be one, well, it's up to you to do something about it. Well, ain't that what I've been telling you? Sure, yeah. But on the other hand, whatever happens outside of town, beyond the city limits, that is, well, I don't see that that's any of your business. Officially, no, but... Well, well... Britt, I won't let you do it. I know what'll happen between you and Singer. If you do get the draw on him, you'll hold off. You won't kill him. But if he gets the draw on you... So long, Ben. Britt. Britt! I didn't ride very far, just a couple of miles. Then I reined up near a clump of spruce. Whoa, boy. Whoa, whoa, scar. Scar wandered around nibbling at some tufts of dried up grass. I settled down in the shade to wait. About ten minutes later, I saw him coming toward me. Not hurrying, just plodding along, slow, easy-like. Of course, I couldn't be sure that this was young Singer, but it seemed more than likely that it was him. And when he got close enough so I could see his face, well, there wasn't much doubt about it. He was young, all right. Appeared to be younger than his years, just a kid. Not a bad-looking boy, either. 
But there was something about his eyes and the way they kept darting from side to side like an animal on the prowl. But when he saw me, he reined up and slid out of the saddle. Howdy. You ride out here from Lockwood, mister? That's right. I hear Britt Ponsett's in town. Is that a fact? He was in town. Was? <laughs> I might have known he'd run out on me. You got any idea which way he headed? Yeah. I'm Britt Ponson. What? That's right. There's something I can do for you? For a second, his eyes stopped moving and just stood there as if he didn't quite know what to do. But it didn't take him long to make up his mind. His right hand whipped down toward his holster so fast that it was all I could do to get hold of the shotgun before he finished his draw. And even then, it looked like he might just go ahead and squeeze the trigger, but he managed to hold himself back. We weren't more than about eight feet apart, staring at each other. His revolver aimed right at my face, and the shotgun I'd borrowed from Pete Drum pointing straight at his belly. What are you trying to pull, mister? How's that? That, that shotgun. What's the matter with your six-shooter? Nothing. Nothing at all. All right, go ahead. You've been telling everybody around town you're going to kill me. All right, go ahead. You couldn't miss me. Go on, you couldn't miss me, not at this range. Sure, sure, but... But... But, but I'd still be able to let go with a blast, too, you know. Is that what you're worried about, Wes? And I guess it'd tear a pretty big hole through you. I ain't afraid. You think I'm a coward, don't you? I'll tell you one thing, I think. You know, you never faced up to the fact that you might get killed in one of these gunfights of yours. As long as you got off the first shot, you figured the worst the other fellow could do was just to nick you, if he was lucky. All right. Now, you can get off the first shot now. But if you do, I don't need to be able to aim this shotgun. I just couldn't help hitting you. You're, you're loco, Ponson. We, we'd both be dead. Yeah. Well? You, you can't expect a man to... To commit suicide. All right, I'm waiting, Singer. You know there's no way to... You know I don't dare... That's right. But what do you expect me to do? I expect you to put your gun away and get out of here. And you'd better not come into Lockwood again looking for trouble, because this isn't the only shotgun in town. <laughs> Well, after a minute or so, he turned and he climbed on his horse. And I... I I don't know for sure what happened to him after that. I heard that he moved on farther west and finally got into a gunfight with somebody who outgrew him. I guess it was bound to happen, of course. I just don't understand what gets into a fellow like him.
During this month before Easter, crippled children are making their annual appeal to you. They are appealing to you to continue to support the medical, therapeutic, educational, recreational, and vocational services which are indispensable to them. The services which are given by the Easter Seal Society in your community. Won't you answer the appeal of crippled children by giving generously to your Easter Seal Society? You may be assured that your gift will be used to provide services that would not otherwise be available to crippled children. Mail your gift today. You may send it to your local Easter Seal Society or to crippled children in care of your local postmaster. The Six Shooter is a transcribed NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burt and is written by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Elvia Allman, Sam Edwards, Will Wright, Howard McNear, and Bert Holland. Special music for this program was by Basil Adler, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. By the way, you'll be interested in knowing that the six-shooter has been chosen for broadcast to our men overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Services. This is John Wall speaking and reminding you once more that next week, beginning April 1st, the six-shooter will be heard on Thursday evening. Listen to Jan Murray in Sunday at Home on the NBC Radio Network. All right, folks, tell me what you think. Give me, give me, give me your honest thoughts about this particular episode of The Six Shooter. Uh, let's start off again with, well, let's start off with Jeff. Okay. Your thoughts. Like I said in the introduction, I've never listened to Six Shooter, and Jimmy Stewart was never my favorite actor, but I absolutely adored it. I loved it. I loved the pace. I loved how it was different. I loved how it was quiet. Uh, I enjoyed his narration, thought it was well-placed, and, and like I said before, the the more tense the situation went, the, the quieter the narration was, and it just gave you this idea that this guy is cool and collected, and there's not a lot of ego that's happening in this character, and I, I liked that. I thought it fit well with Jimmy Stewart and his voice. And the more I listened to, the more episodes I listened to, the more I appreciated it because I couldn't quite figure out the character of Britt Ponsett. And, you know, he's like called the six shooter. And, you know, he's got that fancy gun, the rainbow mother of pearl gun, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have any marks on it, which, which to me tells me that there's not a lot of ego driving him. And he's not looking to shoot anyone. He's not looking to kill anyone. He's looking to help people and get out of their problems mm-hmm. without violence. And I, I liked that. I thought it was different. I thought it was original. Yes. And I appreciated it. Well, it says apparently in the stories that they call him the six shooter because he's able to get off six shots before the average man can fire once. Right. So he's he's super fast, which gives you this sense of menace. Mm-hmm. Maybe everybody around him gives him an aura of respect. Right. And that's what helps them talk to him, right? Because they figure oh, Britt's going to help us solve this situation, or at least he's going to listen to both sides because he actually has that kind of 
respect in the area. And he's a wanderer, right? He goes from one place to another. He's not somebody who's like set up in one place, you know, like the Ponderosa or anything. He wanders from place to place and he seems to know everybody or at least every town wherever he goes. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, Lothar? Uh, well, the uh, the unmarked handle in the you know narration opening description of him, I it, like, like Jeff, I thought that was so important because it really does telegraph his characterization and what he's all about and the fact that he's not, you know, going to put notches on his handle and things like that. I also liked um, one. I, I did very much like the episode. The uh, one of the things I was paying attention to a little bit more is even the attempted at verisimilitude to try and make it seem like we're getting the untold tales of someone. Where it says based on the life of Britt Ponsett, you know, by the you know Frank Burt, and it's like right. it made me want to look up like, oh, are these based on stories or folk tales or novels or something? It, it gives another layer. Mm-hmm. There, as opposed to just you know, hey, written by Frank Burt, you know, it it has, it, it creates a, a feeling of a legend, right? And I liked that. It kind of reminds you of the whole uh, Dakota Ring Theater with Blackjack Justice, right? <laughs> yes, but not not quite as a metatextual. Yeah. Except, I I know we don't want to talk about shows that we haven't seen, but I encourage people to do a little more research into the Six Shooter and take a look at if you don't mind spoilers, what the very last episode is supposed to be about and how that one is very metatextual about the whole genre itself. Cool. Good setup. So it was Mm -hmm. written by Frank Burt. Yeah. And that's that's somebody we could talk about. The character of Britt Ponsett was Frank Burt. He had a number of different roles. I mean, writing credits in various, mostly television, but he did do some radio as well. Yes, I didn't look at too much about what he did, but I just saw that, yeah, he had quite a career. I guess one of the more famous uh, Westerns he wrote was The Man from Laramie. Oh, okay, right. Which I remember seeing a long time ago. But he also did a bunch of shows, including Dragnet and M-Squad and General Electric Theater and Terry and the Pirates and The Cisco Kid, mm-hmm. The Unexpected Captain Pirate. One of the things that, I, that got my attention was he wrote for a show that most people have never heard of called Biff Baker USA, <laughs> which sounds suspiciously like Biff Straker. That's right. So I was really thrilled about that. Now, I, I've never heard of Biff Baker USA, honest, but I, I'm going to go check it out now after I- Well, <laughs> maybe he's one of Biff Straker's uh, second cousins removed or something. That would be awesome. I'll have to have a crossover or something. So the point being is that he was a pretty well-traveled writer when it comes to writing Westerns and for writing both television. So he knew how to be able to do serial writing as well as uh, movies and something larger. And I think that's there's this feeling, even though this is sort of episodic, there is a feeling of a theatrical presence in The Sixth Shooter. Meaning, Would you say that's true? From my point of view, yeah, sure. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah, sure. I mean, you could see it as a film. It doesn't come across as just sort of like, there are some Westerns, and I won't get into... Uh, too many uh, names. <laughs> Bill Hickok. Anyway, um, that sound a little more sort of one-off over the radio, kind of cheaper aspects in that. You combine the music with the sound effects, with the way the production is, with the the developed characters. It could easily be a Western epic or something. No question. In my opinion. And, and the music, since you brought that up and I teased it in the beginning, the theme music, which I thought was brilliant, uh, something called the Highland Lament by someone named Ralph Vaughn uh, William, and it. Right. I read an article or a piece of an article that talked about how they got so much mail asking what was that music. Right, it was only written for the broadcast. Wow, there's no album or anything like that. It was written for the broadcast, and uh, it, it's 
it's this amazing kind of haunting um, melody that I just I, yeah I, that was I was going to go with was the hauntingness of this and it feels like you're alone on on the trail kind mm-hmm. of thing for sure yeah I'll have to listen to it again because I did I did read a lot of things talking about the amazing haunting melody and stuff and I'm like uh I, I don't think haunting means what everybody else thinks it means either that or my version of haunting is far more dark and uh, <laughs> you know, Georgi Leggetti style you yeah know, I think you're right uh, I think yours is different yeah because the haunting that yeah it, to me it just it sounded like the type of music that I could fall asleep to when the sun is is you know setting over the mesa yeah no to, for me and maybe Jeff you can talk to this as well haunting in the way of like a lost memory of sentimentality to a certain degree like a lost yeah, that's what I like think a lost is. time which you know w- we feel like even for him it could have been a time that should have been that never was or or was lost to people so it's you're kind of like walking through the path of your past and you can never get back there that kind of sense in that respect so there's a longingness sure in that kind of haunting mem- memory and that's that's the way i look at it not 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 like you said in a in a darker tone that way so i agree with that yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah another element that i think would be worth talking about in this is the producer because he's one of my favorite all-time favorite radio drama producers and that's jack johnstone jack johnstone in my opinion is maybe one of the best all-time radio drama producers from the old-time radio days. I loved him doing the simplistic Buck Rogers, the 25th century, where he got started with that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, right. Uh-huh. But he's well-known for doing a ton of stuff, including a bunch of um, suspense episodes, but specifically uh, something else that I think we could talk about some parallels. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Was one of his big ones, too, by the time he got into the 1950s. So he spent like 20 years doing these kind of shows. He even did things like, you know, Hollywood Star Playhouse. He really had a good sense of how to bring like a full feeling, the audio movie to places. Even do CBS Radio Workshop. I mean, he worked with Ray Bradbury. He did William Shakespeare versions of stuff on radio. He's just an incredible producer. And it's so heartbreaking that by the time he died, like when they did something in the LA Times for him, I think he died in 91, there's no entry for him in Wikipedia. Really? Yeah. There's very few entries on finding out who he is. And it just, it breaks my heart because he directed, uh, produced, and sometimes even acted in hundreds of these shows over three decades. Wow. Any quest- Any thoughts on the production side of things? It was really good. There was, I mean, I thought the scene that stood out for me just because there were so many literally and metaphorically moving parts was the scene with uh, Howard McNear's uh, character Pete Drum mm-hmm. when he was setting up all of the, the typesetting, all the different letters for doing the typesetting, and you could hear him moving it around. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The production value was was excellent. And that scene, I agree on that scene. And what is it? He can't find a K? Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. He couldn't find a K. <laughs> Just as a little aside, Jack Johnson was the first person to direct Marilyn Monroe in radio. Really? Yeah. So he, ha- he had her set up for a Hollywood Star Playhouse show. And she was quite young at the time. He worked with everybody. What play was it? I would have to go and check that up. I'm not sure. Nope. I don't know. 
I'll have to go look for that. He also did the Adventures of Superman radio program too. So he he did. Oh yeah. He's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like he started because he was in it for 30 years. I'm never surprised when I hear his name show up on like almost every important show that's survived for that reason. It's, it's interesting. Now you bring up some of the interesting characters in this particular episode. Any of the mm-hmm. other actors or roles you want to highlight? Jeff? Well, to me, the the Howard McNear part, of course, you know, the second you hear his voice, you know that's who it is, and and uh, he was he's so good playing those quirky parts, yeah, like the printer, the newspaper guy, right? You know, certainly. And in later episodes, uh, of course, you get William Conrad and in, in there, and and Parley Bear from Gunsmoke, Chester and Gunsmoke, is also in there, and so there's there's just great great actors in all this whole series for sure. Even Harry Bartell shows up again, right? <laughs> I think Harry Bartell's in everything. <laughs> <laughs> and Alan Reed, too, has a number of different roles uh, shows up, which is surprising. Alan Reed, he's, people will remember him specifically as Fred Flintstone. And uh, My Life oh, right. my life with Luigi was a regular show that he had a supporting role in. But he, was, he had such a, a larger-than-life voice. It was almost hard containing him, you know what I mean, for that particular reason. Mm-hmm. Just We talked about this before we started recording. But uh, William Conrad often came in credited as Julius Krellboyne, right. as Julius Krellboyne, because uh, he was a star of CBS Gunsmoke at the time. And of course, the six shooter was on NBC. So I guess even then, they were really kind of worried about sharing, which is weird because you hear about people. I just listened to or just watched a, a long video I sent you guys uh, either today or yesterday about the great Gildersleeve, which was never one of my favorites. Right. But it's interesting seeing all the actors. And the actor there talked about how he was in three different networks in like a 45-minute period. Yep. <laughs> like he ran across to get one, and then he had a taxi waiting to get to another. And even though they wrote him in the first three pages, they could clip it out and record it at the end of the recording session. So he just ran from one place to another. <laughs> and many of them didn't change their names for that. So maybe it was because William Conrad was so well-known as Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke that they were much more concerned about sharing him in that respect. Yeah, who knows? I mean, he he was such a big name, um, you know, top-notch actor in, in radio drama. Maybe he also didn't want to overshadow some, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting uh, yeah. interesting situation for that. Because it, or contractual, because the second you hear his voice, you know who it is. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's it's kind of interesting. And oh, yeah. He's in the, the audition program. Yes. That's, a, I would urge people to go watch that. They redo it later. And they add in just a part in the beginning. Other than that, it's the same program. It's called Ben Schroeder. Uh, and one of the actors in that is an actor that I had to look his name up, but I recognized his voice. And I'm sure you guys will as well. His name was Herb Vigran or Vigran. Yep. And he's a character actor who's been in everything, hundreds and hundreds of movies and, and TV shows. And I said, "Who? I know that guy. I know that voice, and I had to look it up, and I had to dig around a lot to find out who it was. But uh, just some some great character actors, and I I wonder if you know some of these people weren't drawn in so that they could work with Jimmy Stewart. Sure, just a, a or if they were friends of yeah. his or whatever. I don't know how that all worked. Well, and also just the fun factor. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, hey, you know, we get to do this and it sounds like a hoot. I, I think that, you know, that's mm-hmm. an aspect of, of people taking on projects that shouldn't be underestimated. It's just like, hey, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And you wonder how many uh, people like 
they don't talk in, in credits. They don't talk about casting direction. So you wonder if that just was the job of the producer. Maybe Jack Johnstone knew a ton of people from working for 30 years on this stuff and said, yeah, yeah. well, this guy's, I want him. You know what I mean? And just make some phone calls and have a secretary or whoever sure. make the calls to try to do it. And they came also because Jack Johnson was on board for this stuff. So yeah. if they're big radio people, they know the, the big names right. in radio for that reason as well. For those people who are interested, there's only 39 episodes of The Six Shooter. We already mentioned that it was canceled because uh, they couldn't quite get the sponsor they wanted. Mm-hmm. But... 39 episodes and they're all pretty darn good definitely i thought it was 59 i think it's 39 Hmm. yeah according to wikipedia it's 39 but i'm not sure about yeah it's 39 because i'm on six shooter single episodes and they say 40 files so i'm sure one of the files is the picture this is uh if you go to archive.org you could now maybe maybe there's only 39 that's available and the rest were lost i don't know but uh um, nope, you're right i, I was i was we, uh, trying to attribute for inflation and screwed up <laughs> <laughs> if only wouldn't that be amazing that's right we suddenly have a thousand more outer limits episodes and things like that that's <laughs> <laughs> right exactly for that reason so you've listened to a few more too i don't want to get off of this particular episode but jeff was there any others that you would recommend that or anything that comes to mind name recognition wise or? Uh, yes there is and i just want to say that normally what i try to do when we do this is i try to go back and listen to the first episode right and maybe try to get some of the origin story mm-hmm. because that i'm interested in that the original one here doesn't give you really any origin story. No. But uh, if you go back and you listen to the Ben Schroeder one, which I think is number seven, it's also the same as the audition one. Ben Schofield I is also uh, number eight, to... and Red Lawson Revenge is number seven. Duel at Lockwood, today's is 27. So Okay. Yeah. All right. So there you go. But I listened to Britt Ponsett's Christmas Carol, <laughs> which sounds kind of ridiculous right. at first, but I listened to it and I thought it was masterfully done. Yes. Me too. And it's a kind of a retelling of the Christmas Carol based with Western characters. And the, the Scrooge character's name is Eben. Mm-hmm. It's he, a Brit Ponset is telling the story to a young boy who's run away from home That's right. around a campfire. And then uh, I won't give it away, but it's just, it's it sounds silly, but it was really well done. And, and uh, I was prepared to laugh at it. And I was pleasantly surprised. I love that one, too. That, that it was great. That was episode 15 yeah. for those people who are interested. 15. And there was yeah. another I listened to, and I, I can't think of the name of it. Maybe you just mentioned it, Jack, about the, the boy who, the young man who's... Uh, has issues with his stepfather and things like that. Oh, right. Yeah. I can't think of the name of it, but uh, that one was great too. So I've listened to four or five of them. Cool. Very uh, since you brought it to us and I haven't been I haven't been disappointed yet. No, it's 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 pretty equal. If you like one of the episodes, even out and again, it doesn't have to be in order, right? Unless mm-hmm. it's nope. the very last one. You know, I keep the last one for the last because they do have sort of a more of a definitive ending in that respect, but mm-hmm. not right. I would say that if you like that feel and you like that tone cuz really This is a show that's all about tone. Mm -hmm. And if you like that tone, then by all means, listen to more. Maybe we should talk about tone, because I think on the grander scale of things, Westerns have different tones. Sure. So you can't sit there and say, like, we we could argue about horror movies having different tones, but those are really about degrees more than anything else in many cases, right? 
uh, because ho- I would disagree, but that's a completely different subject that, uh, sure. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a horror series, but horror basically doesn't mean a damn thing now. It's such a large umbrella that there's probably like 10 different genres under horror anyway. And each one of them has their own set of tones. Possibly. But I would argue that on one scale is suspense and the other scale is horror like abject horror kind of thing but we that's like you said that's a greater discussion yeah. westerns that'll be a great season because then we could also bring in terror and yeah. dread yeah and sure. a bunch of other emotions in there and <laughs> a little bit of uh, uh the only thing that i think uh, uh sigmund freud did well which was defining certain aspects of oh, fear cool That'd and i won't sleep during the whole season i'm a huge horror fan if you can't tell <laughs> season five <laughs> Season five of Sonic Echo. You heard it here. <laughs> Except Je- Jeff hates it, so he'll be in traumatized uh, right. you know, states by the end of it. But uh. yeah, that's actually when you mention uh, tone, and, and I do want to follow up on that with the Western. But before we get away, we should really talk about this particular episode because in the plot, because I think there's things in there that tie in with tone. The difference in this tone to other types of Westerns that we've already listened to on this season and will continue to listen to, and also how that plays in with certain concepts that have come up, like in the um, Escape episode uh, that we just listened to before this one, where I think that the way that Hmm. Brit approaches things as opposed to Rhett in that is very interesting. Right. Okay. Well, take us down there. One of the things that I liked is that we have two, two sort of themes going on in both episodes that I think is interesting. One is that law isn't always justice. And we saw that in Gunsmoke as well, too, where as the law becomes more and more bureaucratized, there's more loopholes for the criminal to get away with whatever they've done. Right. Mm -hmm. So we saw that a little bit in Gunsmoke. We see that even a little bit in Rhett being like, I'm just going to clear out the Deadwood, you know, and almost in a way that isn't quite illegal, but is slightly darkly amoral, if not immoral. And here we have a, a similar sort of thing where, you know, Wes Singer is basically going to get off everything and he's going to end up shooting the, you know, the sheriff if, if he's, you know, push comes to shove and everything. And we have this interesting decision that Britt makes, which is oh, sure. to just sort of try and calm him down and send him away where Rhett would have just, you know, probably ambushed him, shot him. Probably wounded him so he could like give him some sort of like talk about like, yeah, you're an, you're an idiot for doing what you're doing and I never give everybody a fair chance and then killed him to try and save lives. And here we have Brit who lets him go. Maybe he learned his lesson. Maybe he didn't. And then we find out that, oh, he went west, right. west and finally got in a gunfight where someone outdrew him. Right. Which basically says finally, which doesn't mean right away. So how many other people died by this young thug mm-hmm. because Britt Ponsett didn't make the harder decision. Yep. That's a good point. You know, and, and it's, it's not a judgment thing because everybody has to make their own calls in this life and death situation. And he certainly did what was right for him and he was true to himself. But at the same time, you know, maybe Rhett would have been, you know, maybe Rhett's approach would have actually saved more innocent people's lives than, than Ponsett's approach. True. That is true. Or maybe it would have inspired more. There's a Twilight Zone episode that escapes me at the moment, which is about a gunfighter who is an alcoholic. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, and that's a great it's, one. It's a great one. And and what's really cool about that particular Twilight Zone episode is he sort of gets some courage. There's a traveling uh, medicine show barker, and he gets a potion, basically, that if he drinks within five seconds, he can outshoot anybody oh. for like a 10-second period. So he has to drink it quickly and shoot quickly or else he's... So he does, and it gets him back some respect. And he goes and he decides that he's going to get cleaned up and he's going to change his life. He's no longer going to be this alcoholic in the street. Now, that might be the end of the show for most people, but it's not. 
Because when he gets back there, the girl who kind of works the saloon, who kind of likes him a little bit and has more respect for him now that he's become a man, says, well, this is great. And he says, no, it's not. Now everybody who wants to prove that they can be a gun are going to come and shoot me. And that's the reason why I became an alcoholic in the first place is I had to kill a teenager. So I'm just having one last shave in a bath before I'm going to die. Wow. That was an absolutely great episode in the first season. So uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And what's cool about that is those kind of very clean, if we just shoot this guy, this could be the end of the problem is not always the end of the problem, right? It, it could end up just being an opportunity for somebody else to say, oh yeah, you think you're a big man? I'm going to come after you next. And then the next, and then the next, everyone trying to prove their spur, you know, that they have better grit than the one before. So it's interesting because that never really comes into play with Ponset though, because he's still the six shooter. He yes. still has the re- he still has the reputation. Yeah, he's still attacked by people all over. That's it's not like that increased or decreased at all. All that happened is that he let Singer go, and Singer got shot somewhere else anyway. Well, yeah, it's possible. We don't know. We really don't know how much that like to say that didn't happen. We we can say we don't know how much it happened because I, I would sure, argue- and it's more of a Rorschach test of like what do we each see in it. So that's what I like about sure you know, good art. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes this uh, episode so excellent is, you know, the, you know, disagreement we're having right now is really more of like, I'm looking into a mirror and seeing myself and you're looking into a mirror and seeing yourself. And it's more of a, more of a way of reflecting upon, you know, our own philosophies towards life, which I think is one of the things that art can really do well. Let me just finish my thought here. The reason why I love this about Ponset is because he's not the Rhett kind of character, he's slow to using his guns, as some people might argue. I think he gains more respect from the people from places that he goes to as opposed to fear. Yes, absolutely. Where do you get that idea between fear and respect? And I think that that's, I think that was part of the point of this particular series was because he wanted it to be a family show too, right? Because he wanted, even though it's more adult in many ways, he also wanted to keep it family friendly so he didn't get into a lot of the you know, the, the gritty stuff that we all love for Westerns as well. I think that he was also trying to say, you know, sometimes you don't need to always make changes based upon the end of a gun in that respect. Yeah. No, anyway, you and I are talking about that. That's, that's, a, that's a great point. And one of the, you know, to bring in both Greek structure and comic books into one thing, in some ways, Rhett is more of a Plutonian Batman type character and uh, Britt Ponsett is more of an Apollonian uh, Superman type character. Wow. Well, <laughs> well done. <laughs> now Jeff has to bring in Shakespeare and we have the trifecta. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Jeff? I, I'm just, I'm listening and trying to process what you're saying. And it's so interesting because I hadn't thought of, you know, the Jack Rhett part of it. And and so I'm just kind of processing it and seeing where it goes. But I think in Britt Ponsett's character, he's not going to kill West Singer. And I find it interesting that when he does face West Singer, he's holding a shotgun, yeah. not his six shooter. You know, because when he says, well, you could shoot me, but, you know, I'll get a shot off and it'll hit you. And I I find that to be interesting. And I I don't know what to make of that other than I find it an interesting, uh, you know, difference for the guy who's called the sixth shooter to be using a a shotgun. It's so weird that he is reluctant to use his gun, but you really get the sense that he is so watching everybody around there that if somebody pulls... He's going to pull first. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, so I don't know too many other Western heroes that have that kind of reluctance directly. So in that way, I find him really interesting as as a character. Yeah, he's very layered as a character. And the fact, like you said, 
Jack that he's got this reputation of, of being faster than everyone, and yet he's got no ego about it, like I said before, and everyone seems to love the guy. You know, when, like in the one where he sees the um, blacksmith in the Ben Schofield one, you know, the guy he, no, doesn't know him, but he knows of him. So the second he says, I'm Britt Ponson, he's like, oh, you're Britt Ponson. And they start to talk and, and there's no fear. It's just, you know, that everybody just seems to, to love and respect this guy. Mm-hmm. Well, you both have mentioned, you know, fear and respect. And I think there was another associated emotion that plays uh, heavily into this, but into Westerns in general. And I think we've seen that already in, in some of what we've covered and we'll probably see again, mm. is the idea of shame. Mm-hmm. Shame being a huge motivator. I mean, so much of this discussion, even between... You know, Sheriff Hittleman and Britt and everything is like they're on the same page. And the only main reason that they're not saying, well, how can we work together and just what what sort of plan can we come up to to save the town or anything is because this idea of your personal name, your personal honor, the shame that comes from not backing up your words with actions is really the cultural capital that is more precious than anything else. And it seems to be driving everything from West Singer's, you know, slightly psychotic young thug, which we could probably transport this into some inner city now and, and with very little rewriting, mm-hmm. make the, the script still pertinent today of, you know, some, you know, person thinking that violence is the way to, mm-hmm. you know, get respect and get honor by, you know, doing horrible things when they're far too young to even realize maybe what they're getting involved in. For sure. I thought that the shame aspect was really interesting because I think that Britt and Hittleman would have come to a different solution working together in a different time period. You know, it's funny that you say that because I look at my notes and in all capital letters, I wrote across the bottom, uh, reputation. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's yep. this idea, and you see it in so many Westerns, right? This idea of your reputation. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I thought that was something that was interesting to talk about because in this, I found that you had this interesting juxtaposition of ego versus uh, kind of a lack of an ego with all of it that Howard McNear's character says when I think it's Jefferson who owns the ranch, right? And he's got this huge ego. They're, they're talking about it. And of course, Singer uh does as well he's gonna you know he's gonna take on Ponset or he's gonna kill the sheriff or whatever he's going to do and then you've got Ponset that represents kind of a, a, a non-ego or a lack of that just this kind of you know I'm not interested in that I'm not interested in my reputation in terms of being the six shooter I, I found that interesting in this episode wow that just made me think of something maybe ego occurs in absence of reputation like they're either sides of the same sort of line right so somebody identifies or creates an ego because they're either trying to create a reputation or they're trying to recorrect a reputation or they're trying to build something but if you have the reputation based upon whatever you've done on a regular basis there's really no need for that ego sure I mean, you look at the sheriff too, right? The sheriff is going to go face him, even though he knows he's going to lose. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Because the people in the town won't look at me the same way anymore, yep. right? Yep. And so there's that reputation piece. And in a way, I thought of this, that I, I thought that Ponset act, acted a little bit uh, like Jack Rett did. When Jack Rett sends the uh, marshal away, right? Ponset goes and circumvents it so mm-hmm. the sheriff can maintain his reputation because Ponset's going to face him outside of the, the town limits, right? And thus save the uh, sheriff's reputation. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he also, to bring back that legal aspect in the bureaucracy, he leaves the bounds of order to go into chaos outside of the town limits where the law doesn't reach anymore mm-hmm. in order to... right 
enact this. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of subtleties going on there. I really like it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, just uh, the last thing is you know, when you're talking about reputations and stuff like that, something that goes through so many cultures is the idea that immortality is what people remember you by. Right. Hmm. So we get that in certain aspects of the Iliad. Um, that's, you know, completely throughout, you know, basically European culture is the idea that if you are remembered well, you are immortal. Mm-hmm. You know, and that might be more important for some people than living. So, you know, for Hittleman, it doesn't matter if I die, if people remember me well, that's better than living without that honor. I got it. And I that. wonder, that's a good point. I wonder if that's what comes back to Stuart wanting to make sure that this was something that people would remember him well by. Yeah, for sure. sure. This show, you know, maybe it's maybe it's the same type of thing. And I, I know that, you know, when you talk about guys like John Wayne and the way that he was portrayed in most of his movies and and Stewart and others it was different than the Clint Eastwood type of hero or anti-hero in many of his movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John Wayne was very, very much uh, in tune with that and, and didn't care for Clint Eastwood's characters at all yeah. yes. because he felt like it didn't uphold, you know, whatever of the Western hero. And, and Clint Eastwood would shoot you in the back. Not Clint Eastwood, but Clint Eastwood's character. Right. So it's an interest, interesting thing when you start to talk about reputation and, you know, being a man in quotation marks right. or whatever that means sure. in the uh, prevailing culture. You know, even his horse is named Scar. Scar. Which talks mm. about something that happened as opposed to what, what you know, the horse isn't sitting there like gunfire or lightning or, you know what I mean? It's, right. it's, it's, a, it's a talk about past injuries. You know, and passed a reputation from the horse itself. Yeah. Well, I wonder through the whole thing, like, what is Ponset's backstory? Yeah. And as far as I'm found out and listening to four or five, there's, there's, I've not gotten any clue, you know, as to what it was. I mean, he's this wanderer character, mm-hmm. you know, who's just going. He's in this episode or one of the episodes. He's on his way to to farm to uh, the ranch to do the, you know, some. You know, itinerant work there, right? Right. Tooling around the the West and and doing it. So, but there's no indication to me of what this guy was in the past, if it was something else. Well, he doesn't go as a gunfighter from town to town. Right. That's just something he ends up having to forced to do once in a while, Mm -hmm. you know? I think we're getting on the edge of what makes Western stories so compelling compared to other adventure stories. I think this idea of reputation and everything it comes from and this need for reputation, which is the ego, I think those elements and the clash of those become a real part of the setting, part of the tone, part of the whole feel of a Western experience. Yeah, and and goes back to, you know, again, that mythic aspect that we've brought up before, how this is sort of American mythology, Mm -hmm. because those same things you just mentioned are dynamics in various realms of other legendary areas within their mythic realms. You know, whether we're talking about Beowulf or Rama or, you know, Mm-hmm. pick a culture and there's going to be similar aspects to the wandering hero who is fixing things when they go on a quest. I can't think of any other genre with the exception of superheroes that can gain that same kind of connection to mythology. Like even noir stuff and we talk about how there's a connection between noir and western to a certain degree. I don't think that noir has such a clear-cut understanding of reputation and ego for the most part. I mean, there's certain certain movies that do, but there's a lot more gray in a noir than there is in a Western for that reason. Yeah. Sure. It comes into play, but it, it, you know, noir is always about crime to some degree. And and by noir, I'm even extending it to the literary aspect of like, you know, mm-hmm. Cornell Woolrich and people like that. 
David Goodis, you know, where there may not be a detective, but there's still crime going on. And so that's a, a different sort of defining, almost like the dark underbelly of the mythology of like, how, what, what is the dark underbelly of American cosmology, mm. you know, for lack of a better term. Anything that has to, that is mythic in some way, and I'm using the term slightly mm-hmm. loose here, but when we're dealing with Westerns or even mm-hmm. uh, samurai epics from the Tokugawa period, or even superhero comics, like you were talking about, to some degree, a cosmogony and a cosmology. And by that, we're using the term cosmos in in the sense of order, right? You know, the way that things are arranged. What is the creation of the order? What is the nature of the order? That would be the cosmogony and the cosmology, you know, respectively. Mm -hmm. So with the Westerns, we've got the birth of a nation. We've got the defining of things, defining of people. How are they going to live in this world? And to me, that that helps, makes people respond in a mythic way to this particular material that maybe other genres don't. Maybe it's because, and I I know we want to get back to Jeff, but I I wanted to finish this thought if you don't mind, Jeff. No, go ahead. Maybe Westerns, in that respect, you are dealing with almost, mythology deals with the beginning of things, and Westerns deal with the beginning of America, right? So you have this wildness, this openness, almost this undefined unclaimedness, and yet Throughout, whenever you have those things, you have somebody saying, what order are we going to place upon this chaos so that we can live? Because if we just go in there, it's like going Wendigo, right? It's giving into the wilderness and getting lost. And there's all sorts of stories about how that happens. There's almost a real requirement to create order in these kinds of stories, or at least some semblance of some kind of ethic. That people can follow. Yeah. And that is very much the mythology. And that even brings in the anthropogony and anthropology, which is the birth of humans and the nature of humans. And while we don't see that literally, we see it metaphorically of what makes a person. And I think that gets back to the whole shame, fear, respect. And um, I'll hand it over to you now, Jeff. I I was going to ask a question. I I find this all very intriguing and and I'm processing all this that you're saying. And and, uh, Lothar, does Ponce represent something of a knight errant character <laughs> in some ways? Maybe. Yeah, I would, I would say maybe the knight errant thing gets really weird when you look at the specifics of it, but in broad strokes, sure. I, I'm not, I'm not sure that he has a larger undergoing quest of, you know, I'm going to travel around and I don't know the specifics, but I'm doing it for this particular purpose. Do we ever really find out what his main motivations are? No, I was thinking of it more like in the chivalric type of a thing. He, I, I think he's acting with honor. Um, that's why I posed it in the form of a question. I, I Sure. I, yeah. I'm not convinced of it, but I, but I thought that maybe it's something like that, or maybe maybe not even to be that specific, but to use that the idea of the wanderer, that wandering person. Yeah, I would say he's almost closest. If you're going to pick a knight, he's almost closest to Lancelot before he's connected to Arthur. Mm. And Lancelot has a very definitive uh-huh. idea of what it is to be a knight in the world. And he doesn't have to be connected to some particular country. In fact, he's not. He leaves, you know, France and moves towards England and tries to do the right thing wherever he goes following that particular ethic. There's not a lot of knights in the knight errant. Usually they're connected to, well, this is how we do things in Camelot. Uh That's a little more, or this is how we do things in Germany. You know, this is what's supposed to be done based upon what I know in our order of some sort. And there is no order that Brit belongs to. No, and that's, I think, Jack, you just hit on it. Where most of the knight errant stuff coming from uh, chivalric uh, medieval romances are very specific to a specific aspect of Christian romanticism at that time period that really didn't even reflect reality in the way that knights acted, but was always very much about here's 
here's what the king says, here's what God says, here's what you were born to do because you had this mythical experience when you were a child and that's what's going to drive your quests going on. And while we don't get that in the Western, I think maybe Mm -hmm. even though it's not exactly the same, we, you know, if it doesn't rhyme, it at least alliterates. And it's a very American way of doing it (laughs) and a very sort of post-Puritan way of doing it. Because now that I listen to that, and I would have to agree, because I think the American thing is independence and being your own man and all of that right and and so yep i I think maybe that's where they there's a dichotomy between that poncet when you listen to the four or five that i've listened to he's always trying to do the right thing he's always trying to help people peacefully in, in a way that's gentle and nice and nurturing that's why i found it interesting that he's out there he's a wanderer and he's doing the right thing based on what he believes in, in a country that is filled with chaos. Mm-hmm. He's trying to bring some kind of law, just virtue or whatever. So maybe bringing the knight errant was a little too specific. But you're right. It's in line with that in some way on a continuum, I think. Yeah. And I don't think it's too far of a, of a stretch. I think as we've been talking through this, I, I'm, I'm more on board with the idea because, you know, if... The European knight is always going to, what is the right thing in service of king and God by extension and all the ideals that go there? Well, in America, we don't have kings. We may or may not have God, but it's tied into a far more different sort of individual relationship in some cases, or at least a local relationship. So he is still fighting towards that, the same ideals that are defining the cosmology in that mythic sense. It just happens to be a different one because it's America. There's a reason why American says God and country, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, it may not be a definitive God. I would still say it in the West, at least, it's still in the service of a Christian God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a Christian God ethic in the European values. Everything Brit does is services. Yeah, the individual is important. As long as it services the greater good of the town, right? Right. So that's the Mm -hmm. main thing. Be your own man no matter what. You might get respect, but you get a whole lot more fear because then people don't know what you're doing. And, you you, you know, you're going to be your own man. Well, if you kill half the people in the town, that's not a cool thing either in that respect, so. Yeah, and to clarify when I was saying not about king and God, I should have probably said king and church. Yes. Okay. Because yes, God is still very present, but again in this in this sort of post-Puritan era of America where you've got new Christian cults mm-hmm. popping up all the time in various places, it's a far more local and almost individual relationship as opposed to even the original Protestant churches or obviously the Catholic Church. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Wow, those people are really strange over there in that territory and the way that they believe in God. Our God's so much better, right? I, yep. <laughs> you know? And it could be just as strange, you know? It's that whole right, exactly. uh, Jonathan yeah. Uh, yeah. Swift, Gulliver's Travels idea that those people who cut their eggs open on the large end, they're awful. We cut them at the small end. That's the only way to do it. Your boiled egg, that's the only way to eat it is from the small end. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of that, right? Well said, yeah. So you've got this larger ethic, but you have very territorial ways of reflecting itself out, too. There's no question. Have we reached basically everything we can say about the six-shooter this time? We had a nice long chat. The one thing I wanted to mention was I thought that the character of Rex Jeffers was fascinating. I don't know if he appears in any others. While he didn't literally appear in this one, I think we know a whole lot about him just from the discussions that Hittleman, Pete Drum, and Britt Ponsett had about Mm -hmm. good old rancher Rex Jeffers. Sure. There's the ego part, right? I thought that was great writing of like, we know so much about him 
and he never actually <laughs> right entered the play at all. Yeah, exactly. And he was an interesting character. And I thought the same thing about the granny character. Oh, yeah. Now, we do yep. hear from her. And I find it interesting that when she goes to find uh, Brett, what does she do? Uh, she does the opposite of what he's thinking. She says, no, I think you need to kill my grandson because he's going to kill people. And, of course, Brett doesn't agree with that. But I find it interesting. And then she says, I, I didn't do a very good job of bringing him up, obviously, because of what he's doing. And so another interesting character that I just... I find these characters, you know, even the one she's only in it for a little bit, right? Yep. I find her very memorable and very well acted. I mm-hmm. say. That's an interesting archetype that's not really common, but is there of the idea of the mother and or grandmother or aunt who, because she is intimately connected with the bad character that she's related to, she takes on the responsibility of, I got to take the guy out. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a number of stories to where you've got the mother or somewhat maternal mm-hmm. female character who ends up making the hard choice because no one else can. And there's another element to it, an even deeper element, I would argue, too, that in a lot of Western stories, there are the sins of the past. Yep. Sure. And how do you deal with the sins of the past? She's identifying my problem. This was my problem. My grandson. I screwed up. It's like having a dog that, you know, has bitten somebody and you hate the thought of it because you love that dog, but you got to put it down. Oh, There's yeah. a lot of that in, in the Old West, whereas mm-hmm. you're responsible for this. You can hide something for 20 years. It's going to come up. It's going to dig its way up. And so that sense of personal responsibility is a huge element of the Western ethic. There's no question. Yep. Good point. I love this conversation. And I think it's part, like you said, part of the grander conversation of how we look at Westerns and how Westerns have represented themselves both through old time radio and through the novelization and film work of the time. Do we have, who's next up on the list? What are we going to listen to next? Who's up? I think that would be Jeff. I am next. And I am still looking. I'm mining through lots of Westerns and trying to find things that I'm not familiar with. With. Mm. And uh, I'm going to come up with something, and uh, I'll let you guys know real quick what it's going to be. <laughs> right quick now. <laughs> Speaking of which, for those people who might want to know, this show actually inspired you to do some writing of your own. Isn't that true? It did. Yeah, it was uh, right after you sent it to us a week or so ago. I listened to it a couple of times, and then just things started to form in my head. And I, I wrote a script, uh, I, I called it Displaced, but that's set in the West, and it's kind of ethereal type of a western and uh, i listened to it again i said wow that that really inspired me because it's it's somewhat derivative (laughs) so i'll just say it's based on or inspired by but it was just that's right yeah i I don't think it's as derivative as you think it is i think it just kind of blindsided you of like wow that really did impress me didn't it (laughs) yeah i think maybe because i I I didn't i didn't realize it until i listened to it again and and uh maybe just the end i guess Mm -hmm. Uh, but i had no idea and so i i think it's it's interesting you know we've been having this talk about westerns for a month or two now and listening to them and talking about them and like i always say the more that we we talk about it i spent a lot of time in in this show listening to YouTube because I was processing what you were saying because you were bringing up so much stuff that I had never considered. And that's what I love about it because it's like, well, that's really interesting. And so it just got me, you know, the whole Western thing for me is kind of a something I've come to appreciate as an adult. And they were always on TV when I was a kid and my dad was always watching them and I never really was interested. But now I, I love them. Mm-hmm. So it just inspired me to write that piece and hopefully we'll get it done and produced and 
and get it out there. Uh, and it'll be fun. You know, it's not done yet. It's yeah. still kind of in its gestation period. But uh, more Amigos production. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, we need real Amigos with the Western. Like That's that. right. That's right. <laughs> and Lothar and I are lucky enough to be in this particular production. Yes, thing, yes, you so are. I'm really excited for that. I, yep. Yeah, and, and I loved your uh, reel that you sent me. I loved the Western voices that you did. And it's great. And you get to be the sheriff. And Lothar, I'm sorry, is the bad guy again. <sighs> <laughs> For some reason, people Little keep typecasting. Type <laughs> <laughs> well, you do it so well. It must have been that time I kept advocating for murder in, in, in the sense of Rhett. You know, he's a good guy. What the hell's Ponset doing? Somebody give me a gun. I'm going to shoot you, Billard. I love it. We switch our whites and black hats <laughs> and ride off into the sunset. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate you guys taking a look at one of my beloved Western shows, The Six Shooter with uh, James Stewart. Thanks so much, Lothar, for coming in. Oh, thank you, too. I mean, like I said, it wasn't one of my favorites originally. Whenever anybody brings something to Sonic Echo, and, you know, this might even be something that the audience is curious, they're like, how come you guys love everything? (laughs) Well, we don't love everything. We're not even trying to be critics. We're trying to be advocates, and we're all trying to bring things that we think there's going to be something worthwhile to listen to. You know, Jack and Jeff, you guys always bring things that are different to me, and I, like, listen to it with new ears, and I really appreciate the Six Shooter a lot more than I did two weeks ago. Awesome. And thank you, Jeff, for coming in. Oh, thank you, Jack, for bringing it. And I agree with what Lothar said, you know, about this program. And I can't wait to listen to the remaining, you know, 30 plus episodes that are that are there. But I'm glad you said that, Lothar, that, you know, how come you guys love everything? Because I hear that. And, and it's because I think what we're trying to do is just spread the love of old time radio mm-hmm. and the fact that all these shows are still there and they're still worth listening to. And, and you know, it goes back to what our dear friend Bill always said about spreading the love of old-time radio, right? And yeah. I always feel like that's our mission, and not to be critical. It's so easy to tear things down and be cynical and just rip everything apart, because that seems to be how things go. But I'm not really interested in doing that. I'm interested in, in saying, you know, I love this show, and this is why I love it, and maybe you can listen to it, and maybe you'll love it too. Maybe you won't, but at least you'll have the experience of, of listening to it. Yeah. That's how I feel. Exactly. It's just, there's plenty of stuff out there that I can't stand to listen to, and none of that's ever going to be on Sonic Echo. <laughs> no, no. I, there's lots of stuff that I'll listen yep. to, and I'll, I'll say, oh boy, you know, but there's so much that is just so wonderful, and just finding them. And I take all the stuff that I hate, all the stuff that I think is awful, and I send it to John Bell to tell him to do his own riff track version of the, his <laughs> own there you go. science theater which is actually what he just did for our hermit's cave oh, episode nice. i said this is so awful please do it and he loves it so if, if you come across a series or a show that you think is just horrendous send it to john bell because he'll make some great fun with no, it he's, he's brilliant uh, so, yeah. just brilliant oh he's so good for the bells and the bat for you i think that episode the one i was talking about was episode 240 so you can go back and look at uh, sunday's showcase All right. Well, that's the end for this week and this month at Sonic Echo. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. And we'll see you shortly in Sonic Echo with next month from Jeff. Whatever it is, we'll find out soon. Adios. Adios, amigos. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. 
Vincent Price. Ladies and gentlemen, in a prejudice-filled America, no one would be secure in his job, his business, his church, or his home. Yet racial and religious antagonisms are exploited daily by quacks and adventurers whose followers make up the irresponsible lunatic fringe of American life, refuse to listen to or spread rumors against any race or religion, help to stamp out prejudice in our country, Let's judge our neighbors by the character of their lives alone and not on the basis of their religion or origin. Thank you for listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. We invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the Matinee and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.